We were playing the musically excellent Bard's Tale 4, Barrows Deep, this last week. Produced by In Exile Entertainment and a direct sequel and successor to the original Bard's Tale series of computer RPGs from the 80s, Barrows Deep follows the traditions of those earlier titles, but brings the series forward into a more modern, action-oriented RPG experience. A significant part of that experience, as you might expect of a game called The Bard's Tale, centers around music. The theme is Gallic, and unlike earlier entries into the series, it's more than the bleeps and bloops of a single wheezy built-in computer speaker. Yes, kids, computers used to come with their own tiny built-in speaker. Just one. No, kids, it wasn't worth it. Fully realized in real choirs, folk musicians, and orchestras take up the tunes of Bard's Tale and bring to life the setting of Scara Bray in ways that most games don't even bother to attempt. You can come around a corner and find a small group of people singing a hundred-year-old folk tune, or step beneath a window to hear someone upstairs in the house above quietly humming a tune to themselves. Combat, rather than being a short musical phrase repeated over and over until you finally dispatch the mini-boss or the goblin, instead consists of a full-length song that starts minimally and then gradually builds itself the longer combat takes, adding in additional instruments and even lyrics as it goes on. It's an immersive experience just encountering and listening to the music alone. Naturally, your main character, assuming you don't elect to build a custom character when the opportunity arises, is a bard herself. As part of her repertoire, she can sing a variety of helpful songs which reveal various secrets around the city of Scarbray, open up passages otherwise blocked, or generally just prove useful to the party as a whole. And that doesn't even include the actual spells in combat, all of which behave differently and sound differently depending on what instrument your bard chooses to use. You start out with a set of musical bones in your offhand, which provide a nice clickety-clackety rattle whenever they're used. That's pretty cool, but also a bit worrisome, as they appear to be the bones of an old adventurer of some sort, possibly a fellow bard. It isn't until you're just starting out on the main quest after the tutorial that you find someone willing to sell you other instruments. Now, most people picture a bard as a loot-playing shenaniganist of dubious actual musical ability. See our episode on bards to find out why they've got such a weird reputation. But we know better. We know that Bard is absolutely the worst class name ever picked to embody a character that is both a wanderer seeking adventure and a performance-minded artist. That being the case, we immediately rejected the lute as the instrument of choice. So too did we reject the harp. And frankly, we'd been so traumatized with a previous experience GMing the flute-playing sort of Bard many years ago that we rejected the flute as a valid choice as well. Let's just say it's hard to blow a happy sort of encouraging song and effectively run away at the same time once the wee monsters you thought you could be quite handily turn out to take the word aqualung incredibly literally. Which left us with a choice we hadn't really considered in the realms of bardic adventuring before. The drum. Oh, we knew you got a lot of armies marching to drummers and bugleists and so forth during the fighting. Though these days, that mostly means a marching band well away from the fighting, because it turns out a glockenspiel provides surprisingly little actual cover from enemy fire. In any case, we'd never really considered the role of drummer to be a fighting role, let alone a bard role. So we went and looked. And wouldn't you know it, 
It turns out there's a whole lot more to drums and their history than just old Sandy Nelson records your parents have laying around the house. Look them up, kids. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. For those of you not in the know, a drum is a member of the percussion family of musical instruments. And don't look at us like that. You know we have to do this bit because someone out there will write in to complain that we never actually explained what a drum was. Just let us get it out of the way and we can move on. A drum is made up of at least one membrane, sometimes called a drum head and sometimes called a drum skin, stretched over some sort of shell and hit in a variety of ways to produce a sound. Except that's kind of wrong. Some things we call drums are simply rigid shells with no membranes at all, just hard bodies that resonate when struck. So, for an extremely technical and correct explanation of what a drum is because other people will ask that too, a drum is classified as a membranophone in the Hornbostel sax system, and now we have everyone's attention because look at those words we just used. In 1877, what is now known as the Musical Instrument Museum first opened in Brussels, Belgium. It was originally part of the Royal Conservatory of Brussels and was used to demonstrate instruments to students. Its initial collection of instruments was donated by King Leopold II of Belgium and consisted of 100 Indian instruments given to him by Raja Sarindro Tagore, along with some instruments from the collection of Belgian musicologist Francois-Joseph Fettis. The museum's first curator was a man named Victor Charles Mahalan. And by the time he died in 1924, the museum's collection had grown to 3,666 instruments collected from around the world, and with many made by Mahalian himself. He was born to a family of instrument makers and music publishers, and worked in his father's instrument factory as a young man, spending much of his time studying music, instruments, and sound. While he was well-respected in his time, his efforts in work in acoustic science has since been supplanted by later understanding and discovery. However, his one enduring contribution to the understanding of music and instruments persists to this day. He developed a classification system for musical instruments that meant that any instrument, known or unknown, could be classified immediately into one of four broad groups based on the nature of the sound-producing medium. Idiophones, from the Greek idio meaning one's own or personal, and phone meaning sound, produce their sound from the vibration of the body of the instrument rather than strings, a membrane, or a column of air. Bells, cymbals, and other percussion instruments except drums fall into this category. So those hard body struck instruments we were talking about before fit into this category and are not classified as drums in the technical sense. Chordophones, from chord, meaning, you know, making a chord on a stringed musical instrument because that was clearly consistent, produce sounds by the vibration of a string or strings stretched between fixed points. All stringed instruments, guitars, violins, etc., pianos, but not all keyboard instruments, and harpsichords are in this category. Aerophones make sounds by vibrating air and not themselves, strings, or membranes. Sirens, trumpets, saxophones, and even the sounds of the whip or a sword blade moving through air are all examples of aerophones. Membranophones, named for the part that makes the noise, the membrane, is the second of the four original categories, but we saved it for last. It includes drums and, wait for it, kazoos. Yes, really, even kazoos are accounted for. 
Now, this was all well and good for starters, but as you can imagine, with time and the development of musical instruments over the years, it became necessary to add at least one more category. And if you think about it for a moment, you'll spot where the big hole is in regards to modern music. In 1914, along came two people, Eric Moritz von Hornbostel and Carl Sachs, and they said, look, this classification system is okay, but we've got some ideas for expanding it, because, you know, the point of any classification system is to be able to better study and understand the things it classifies and compare them to each other in a way that allows new understandings and conclusions to be drawn from them. And while the current system certainly has things sorted into some very big boxes, those boxes are very hard to dig through, and please could we use some smaller ones inside those? Or something to that effect, we may be paraphrasing. In any event, they were given the go-ahead, and soon had subcategories and sub-subcategories, and even sub-sub-subcategories, and the kazoo was still included along with swords and whips, and so everyone thought that would be okay and agreed to use it instead. And it's this improved system that is still in use today, except with the addition of one major category added in 1940 by Sachs. Electrophones. Instruments which produce sounds by means of electricity in some manner, including things like electronic keyboards, synthesizers, and the theremin. Using this new expanded classification system, any instrument could be compared to any other instrument whether presently known or brand new and understood regardless of form or function. But we digress. Generally speaking, anything that's been around as long as drums have been around in the historical record comes from one of three places, Egypt, Mesopotamia, or China. In the case of drums, it's China. Which is not to say drums were invented in China, just that the oldest known drum was found in China. Made with alligator skin, it dates to somewhere between 5500 and 2350 BCE. Drums as instruments were probably really invented when the first og, grog, or grunk took the first swipe, probably in frustration, at something that went thunk in a semi-pleasing manner. Sure, it probably hurt, that hitting of the hand against, say for the sake of argument, a hollow tree trunk, but the noise was pleasant enough to cause the action to be repeated. From that point in pre-prehistory, it's a short step to modern drum and bass music. The drum is literally the first musical instrument because it required the least amount of technology to create and play. You just needed something that made a pleasant sound when struck, and so it was used by our most primitive ancestors. But to describe the noise a drum makes and the rhythms it produces as primitive is to mistake the word primitive. What drums and drumming are is fundamental. So fundamental that we aren't the only creatures on the planet who use them. One obvious example is the gorilla, which beats on its chest to convey any number of signals from ladies, here I am, to, hey, you with the camera, I don't like you, go away. And it's a short-lived adventure who confuses the two. Other animals make use of drumming as well. The kangaroo rat will alert others in its vicinity by drumming its paws on the ground. Some species of peacock spiders, in addition to their colorful displays and rhythmic movements, create vibrations in the surfaces surrounding them by rapid drumming of their feet and abdomen in order to attract mates. And macaque monkeys have a sophisticated language of drumming using various objects that their brains process as if it were regular vocalizations. Drumming in humans is so fundamental that we often use it unconsciously to communicate stress, boredom, fatigue, and fear 
while also attempting to manage or mitigate those conditions. Percussive and rhythmic movements and tapping are often seen as distractions or lack of focus in environments where one is expected to be concentrating on information presented. Children that engage in tapping of fingers, pencils, or other similar activities are often seen as being distracted and off-task. However, more recent research has begun to show that the tapping and related movements, while indicators of the onset of distraction, are helpful in refocusing the mind on the tasks at hand and are really attempts to avoid becoming off-task. Even children who have actually been clinically diagnosed with ADHD have been shown to focus better when allowed some degree of fidgeting and tapping. These activities increase levels of dopamine and norepinephrine in similar ways to traditional ADHD medication, which aids in focus and attention. A few studies have even suggested that, rather than discouraging fidgeting behaviors, making lessons more interesting and less repetitive would greatly help reduce the overall loss of interest that actually precipitates perceived off-task behaviors. But far be it from us to suggest we've ever had extremely boring teachers who were zombie-walking through lessons they'd been giving in exactly the same way for 15 or 20 years until we basically tuned out and made our own fun. Especially not our high school photography class. No, sir. We had nothing to do with his retirement. Drums have been eliciting physical as well as physiological responses in the human animal practically since the beginning. We've all seen at least one cartoon or movie in which a distant drum signals an imminent attack or some impending danger, serving at one and the same time to encourage, strengthen, and excite those for whom the drum beats while demoralizing, weakening, and scaring those who are about to face them. The war drums of the natives are a real thing, though not perhaps as universally used as one might be led to believe in popular media, but this is not the only communicative use of drums. An entire class of drum, the talking drum, comes from West Africa, where they were used to communicate all kinds of information. The talking drum is an hourglass-shaped affair with two drum heads, one at either end, connected by tension cords. The cords are manipulated by squeezing them between the arm and body, allowing the player to change the pitch of the drum to such a degree that it mimics the tone and something called prosody of human speech. Prosody is a linguistic term that encompasses the intonation, rhythm, and meter of human speech. You're paying attention to prosody when you notice the difference between natural human speech and artificial machine-generated speech you might hear when, for instance, your phone tries to convince you to buy extended insurance for a car you've never owned. Skilled players of the many varieties of talking drum can play out whole phrases of understandable words that sound as if they were said by someone humming them. While it doesn't precisely mimic the qualities of vowels and consonants, varying the pitch of the drum as it is played, including across a single beat, allows the drum to talk and carry important information. In regions where the drum is used, the regular speech of its practitioners is often characterized by the use of tone to convey meaning in the first place, in similar ways to spoken Chinese. So effective was communication by talking drum that those who weren't familiar with the method often put down the rapid transmission of information by them to feats of telepathy enabled by the drum. In 1949, John F. Carrington, an Englishman living in Africa, published a book called The Talking Drums of Africa, in which he outlined the basic usage of the drum and explained how the messages were carried. Messages sent by drum had a working distance of about five miles during the day and up to seven miles at night, 
and rarely went further than this unless they were of particular importance, in which case they could be transmitted 20 miles or more by means of relay. One village would pick up and retransmit the message of another village if needed, but there were several problems with this method that prevented it from coming into widespread use. On the one hand, this series of relays always required someone to be at the drums, and this was impractical. On the other hand, according to Carrington, since the drum language is based on the tribal tongue, it is usually understood only by members of the tribe. There's no international drum language in Africa any more than there is a common spoken language. At Yakusa, it is possible to hear drums beating in four quite different drum languages any day, so that at the boundary of the tribal group, sending out a message there would be a check in transmission. This check could only be overcome if a drummer were available who understood the drum language of his own and of the neighboring tribe. Such men do occur in boundary villages. Children of parents who come from two different tribes often learn both languages and become bilingual on the drum. But they are not numerous, and this fact makes it difficult to relay a drum message across the boundary of the tribe. Thus, many of the stories of news traveling across vast areas of Africa in a very short time must be accepted with great reserve, even although the drum language may seem to provide an explanation. The trick of communicating meaningfully by talking drum is accomplished by the use of elaborated unique phrases. Since meaning has to be communicated entirely by tone, words with similar tone if beaten out by themselves would tend to confuse rather than inform. So each word has a phrase in which it is wrapped, and these phrases were what was learned by both the drummer and the listener. For example, the word for plantain and the phrase up above in one African language are both comprised of three low tones in succession. So to use them by themselves on the talking drum would confuse things. You wouldn't know if you were supposed to look up or if someone ordered a plantain. Instead, phrases were taught which made the meanings clear. Plantain became the low and high tones for the phrase plantain which is propped up when ripe. Three low tones followed by a sequence of high, low, high, and then two more low tones. And up above became the longer phrase up in the sky. Four lows followed by three highs. Due to the nature of the language and the need to be clear, the drum language often becomes poetical and lyrical and revealed even more about the people using it than their regular spoken words. In the same language as the examples above, Kele, the spoken phrase, don't worry, becomes the drum phrase, take away the knot of the heart up into the air. If you'd really like to worry, though, consider the role of the drummer boy. No, not the one in the Christmas song, the ones in the military. Military drums were used around the world in places like China and India for centuries before really entering the historical record. The Vedic deity Indra has a war drum called the Fist of Indra, according to the Rig Veda, which, as you will know from a variety of our episodes, was written sometime between 1700 and 1200 BCE. But it wasn't until the Crusades that European armies really began using drums for war, after they saw them in use by Islamic forces and noted their profound effect upon the European horses, which had had no experience of them in battle and spooked whenever the opposing forces' kettle drums were heard. By the 13th century, war drums were all over Europe and seeing use as a means of both rallying your own troops and demoralizing the enemy. Eventually, they took on the role of signaling particular orders. One of the early uses was to signal curfew, but the role quickly expanded to include the playing of marching cadences, coordinating the movement and action of complicated formations such as spear and pikemen, 
and to signal advances and retreats, roles which would later fall to buglers. Initially, though, drummer boys were really drummer men and were recruited just like any other soldier. It was the fife players, not being a regulation military instrument, who could be young boys. Eventually, someone probably realized that a grown man playing a drum was more effective as a combatant than a musician, and by the mid-19th century, underage boys could enlist and sign up as drummers. Often they were treated like mascots, and the life seemed pretty good to any boy inclined to leave home early for a variety of reasons, full as it was with adventure and excitement. Especially once various artists and writers got hold of the idea and started juxtaposing the innocence of youth with the cruelty of war in their works. Sometimes these were true depictions of actual drummer boys, but most often they were not and became more and more idealized as time went on. Fortunately, by the end of the 19th century, the whole drummer boy idea had pretty well faded out as the general public grew less and less comfortable with the idea of children in the military especially after a few horrific events in relation to the Zulu uprisings against the English in Africa. As armies and nations transitioned into the 20th century, military musicians became largely ceremonial. Meanwhile, our bard is still banging on the drum every time they cast a spell or encourage the rest of the party. And you know what? It makes a whole lot more sense now. The drum excites us and prepares us, it communicates with us and gives us a little jolt of natural chemicals that helps the rest of the party focus on what's going on. And if you use it right, the drum can really set a party of adventurers on edge at your table. Especially if understanding its distant tattoo means the difference between success and failure. Thanks for listening to another episode of GM Word of the Week. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're really enjoying Bard's Tale 4, and if you'll allow us to make a recommendation and computer games are your sort of thing, we recommend you check it out. There's been a lot of stuff going on lately behind the scenes, so much so that we've given some serious consideration to moving our production and release days out by one or two, so we can have some clear air to record in around here. Let us know if it makes a difference to you what day episodes come out on. We'd like to try to make it as convenient for everyone as we can. Speaking of letting us know things, Rose Quill was kind enough to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And for that, we say thank you very much, Rose. We're glad you're finding it so useful. If you're listening to us somewhere, and we presume you are, since otherwise, how can you hear us right now? Leave some feedback for us in whatever form you can. Sure, it helps others find us and listen, too, but really, we just like knowing you like us enough to care. We are, as ever, supported by the very generous contributions of our patrons on Patreon. Without them, this show wouldn't be half as good as it is now. Their contributions, in a very real and tangible sense, make this podcast what it is, and for that, we thank them. Join them and offer your support, too, by heading over to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com. Click the yellow banner at the top for details. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Parumpapum Casey. Music on today's episode was provided by the amazing Blue Dot Sessions, who have many quality drum-focused tracks. The end comes soon. We hear drums, drums in the deep. 
they are coming.